Welcome to the Bow Church Podcast. This is our five-part series on the book of Revelation. In this episode, Tim May will be taking us through chapter 5, highlighting the power and sacrificial love. We hope you enjoy this podcast. The book of Revelation, chapter 5 the scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Father, send your Holy Spirit that as we open up scriptures now, we would see and hear more than just with our natural ears and eyes, but that we would see Jesus and we would hear heaven's song. Amen. So last week we began a five-week series in the book of Revelation, in this epiphany series. The, The word epiphany comes from the word to be revealed originally. And as we look at the book of Revelation, the prayer is that something would be revealed to us, Jesus. I introduced the structure of the book last week and 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 how it's sort of put together and and if you'd like to listen to that if you missed that it's now up on our podcast you can get the link in in our weekly email and whenever you come across the word opened up that's the way the book of revelation is structured five sections divided by this phrase open up and and really that's the prayer that things will be opened up to us revealed to us I mentioned three things overall in this series. Firstly, that confinement can be an opportunity, 
As David in the Old Testament, in the caves, hiding from Saul, wrote the Psalms. Paul in prison wrote the epistles. John on the island of Patmos. We, here, as the snow falls outside in lockdown, confined, would find an opportunity to go deeper into our faith. Secondly, that there is more to reality than we can see or hear. Like looking under the bonnet of a car, looking at the engine, you see the way something works. It's slightly disturbing, like the images in Revelation, slightly odd, strange, different. To look at the engine is, is a sort of an alien thing, but it's actually how the car works. We're looking into more than just the surface of how things are in the world, the good and the bad. We're looking at the influences behind them. And thirdly, the third thing that I hope will be opened up is that the centre of reality is Jesus. The centre of the story, the centre of the universe, the story is about Jesus. I pray these three things will be opened up in new ways for us. And I was surprised, if I'm honest, quite how enthusiastic um, many of us have been about the study of, of Revelation. And um, it's been great encouragement to me. I wasn't necessarily expecting it, but how many people have really um, commented and engaged and are really excited about this. We said, let's read it as a church together. Let's read the book. You can listen to an audio version on an app or something, or you can read the whole book. But we're, we're having a go together, reading a little chunk Maybe each day. I, I suggest reading a little chunk each day. And I said, maybe write down a list of all the things that confuse you. That's probably quite a long list by now. It's okay to find it strange. It's okay. I heard about some people reading it, even find it funny. That's a perfectly legitimate reaction the first time you read Revelation. It's, it's meant to be strange. It is strange. It lifts us to a, another place. But as I said last time, the images, although we don't take them literally, they are serious. They do mean something. And so it's a task for us to, to, to go into the, into, the, into the images, into the weight of what they might mean to us. Not to be satisfied with just finding it funny and a bit strange, but, but to mine for the truth. And so today in the, the long passage that Elizabeth read for us, chapter four and five, I'm just going to pull back just a, a layer on a couple of things. There's far too much that we can't do justice to it all today, but just a couple of things. And then point to just one aspect that I think is significant for us as a church. So a recap, John is, is exiled on the island of Patmos, a Greek island 10 miles from the coast of Turkey. The church at the time is under fire, under pressure from the emperor Domitian, who'd upped his ante to seem like a god and required worship from all his citizens. And so he'd asked people to worship him and the Christians refused. So they would be sent to places like Patmos where there was a stone quarry to force labour. John was probably sent because he was too important a leader to be martyred. They thought, you know, if you martyr a leader like him, there might be a revolution. But John, who was a leader in the church, was sent to Patmos, exiled. And he has this image of Jesus, this vision of Jesus, startling picture. And it's terrifying. And it's also tender. Jesus says, do not be afraid and holds his head, puts his hand on John's head. And in the other hand, holds the stars, the cosmic and the personal, the universal and the particular. And then in chapters two and three, which we've missed out, seven letters to seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. They're actual real places in Turkey. Seven letters to seven churches talking about the reality and the threat of compromise. And the call to prioritise Jesus. And now we come to chapter four. 
at the beginning of chapter 4, we see this depiction of the throne. It says, at once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And, and, and then, from that point, the passage goes through a torrent of prepositions. On the throne, around the throne, around the throne, on the throne, on the throne, from the throne, in front of the throne, in front of the throne. Seven prepositions that make one point very clear to anyone who reads or hears that passage. The throne is in the centre. The centre of the universe, there is a throne. Headquarters of the universe, there is a throne. This is the throne that was seen in Ezekiel, Daniel and Isaiah has been glimpsed in the Old Testament. And now John sees who is on the throne. Since the apocalypse was given to John, there have literally been thousands of enthronings and dethronings. The emperors have come and gone, Nero, Domitian. They've strutted onto the stage of history and disappeared in arrogance. But Jesus is still on the throne. China has gone through 10 dynasty changes, Japan and China, uh, Japan and India even more. Hundreds of empires have come and gone, Sumerians, Egyptians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Ottomans, Indians, Aztecs, the Austro-Hungarians, Spanish, Portuguese, the German Kaisers, Wilhelm and, and Hitler, gone. Mussolini, gone. Haile Selassie, gone. The Japanese reign of Emperor Hirohito, gone. Communism, so strong, now gone. Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh. The collapse of apartheid. The so-called glorious British Empire. Saddam Hussein, gone. Osama bin Laden, gone. And Donald Trump, gone. And yet, there is still a throne with God on it. Nothing has changed. And around the throne, the living creatures symbolising all of creation, the 24 elders symbolising the combined people of God in the Old and New Testament, and a sea of glass, a picture of order and peace and worship all around. And then we read in chapter 5 this predicament of the one on the throne holding a scroll and no one is found that can open the scroll. And so with great tears, John feels the sadness of the moment. And then one of the elders turns to him and says, don't worry. Don't worry. I see that there will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. That's what John hears. And so he imagines this muscly lion will appear because this is the image of the messianic king of the Old Testament. John gets it. This is classic Old Testament language. That the, the lion of the tribal Judah will, will appear in military conquest. That's what he hears, but what he sees is something very different. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. This is a surprise. John is saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was begun through Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb, so that we could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not defeat, but enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. Not a lion, but a lamb. 
The power of the one who sits on the throne, as Paul said, is made perfect in weakness. Power wrought by love to vulnerability. A lamb. We live in a power-obsessed world. A power-obsessed generation. The internet has given us a new kind of power and a new kind of awareness of power and manipulation. Alt-right, alt-left, the ideologies of our time are power-obsessed. But the message of Revelation says that power without love is evil. This is a word for our times. Sacrificial love is heaven's purpose for power. Only the Lamb is worthy. Now there's a way to preach this that sort of stops there and just says, not the lion but the lamb, just just weakness and vulnerability. But the rest of the verse and the description is slightly more complicated. It says, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes. Strange, strange image. You see, sacrificial love isn't a weak position. Seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns, the symbol of strength. Seven, the number of completion. In the weakness of being slain, this lamb is actually incredibly strong. And seven eyes, eyes, a symbol of wisdom. Seven, the number of completion. In the foolishness of being slain, the cross, this lamb is immensely wise. He knows exactly what he's doing. Seven eyes. He has all power, seven horns, to do exactly whatever he wants. And he chooses and he sees sacrificial love, the way of the cross. The lamb is not helpless. The lamb isn't a victim. The lamb has chosen this way. It's not weak to love. It takes incredible strength. It's not a waste of your time. And it's not a waste of our time to root ourselves and give ourselves to sacrificial love for our energy and our resources to be poured into the most purposeful reality that is in the whole universe. The one throne that still stands is reigning with sacrificial love. Lulu was reflecting on life a while ago, my wife, and she said something incredibly profound. She said, love will always entail a sacrifice, but not all sacrifices are loving. Love is being bonded to something. It is a delighting in something else, a devotion to it, a desire to give yourself fully to something. And so whatever you love, you sacrifice for. You make yourself vulnerable to the thing you love. You give yourself to it. It will cost your attention, your money, your desire. You will lose sleep for it. You will sacrifice for it. You know, addiction is a form of love. You can love heroin. You can love Netflix. But addiction eventually becomes something you need to sacrifice yourself for, even when you don't want to even when you wouldn't choose to, even when the desire has gone. Maybe you loved the way it made you feel at first, but what you're addicted to doesn't love you back and in fact now rules over you with raw power. So we need to be careful about what we love. Careful what we sacrifice for. Careful that it will love you back. Careful that what we love is worthy of our love or it will ruin our life. And on the other side, you can sacrifice with no love whatsoever, out of duty. National, social, a great big ought, I ought to do this, a burden. We can sacrifice out of fear, 
out of self-hatred, masochism. But sacrifice without love is a dead end. If you love an object worthy of your life, worthy of your sacrifice, you'll feel different. There's a reciprocity, a giving back. It feels good. But it isn't just about feelings. Love leads to commitment. For me, making the decision in my own life, it would be things like marriage, uh, decision to have a baby, ordination. These are commitments. This is the form of love and and they entail sacrifice. What about self-care? How do we judge self-care and sacrifice? Surely you can sacrifice too much. Yeah, you can. You can sacrifice about love, like I said, and and you can over-sacrifice, yeah. But I wonder if in the current vernacular, with all that we talk about with self-care, a rising generation is in danger in the other direction of self-care over-sacrifice. They're not in competition. On the Monday closest to the 15th of January every year, the day clo- well, the Monday closest to his birthday. We celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We, we did this week, and this week the news and our social media feeds would have been full of quotes. And I cannot think of a more pertinent example of a life full of words and actions that sing the song of sacrificial love. Dr. King fought to the point of being beaten, maligned, jailed, and ultimately killed for loving truth and justice. The title of his 1963 book, Strength to Love, says it all. It takes strength to love. It's not a weak position, but a courageous one. And as a Christian, we believe that though the road is long and hard, ultimately, sacrificial love is a triumphant posture. Dr. King said when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And he said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. The temporary defeats of sacrificial love, ultimately, like the nails in Jesus' hands, are the means for ultimate victory. Because the final word is the lamb wins. And so we can act and live an alternative story, knowing the secret history, the secret reality is that the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. We find strength to love in this story, in the worship of Jesus. We align ourselves with a greater picture. The love song of heaven, not the worldly shouts for power. Sacrificial love, just as we begin to close, sacrificial love sets us free from ourselves. I was blown away to, to get a message uh, that surprised me a couple of months ago. A friend just sent me this message. He said, you said something to me in the summer of 2019 I still think about most weeks. I told you before a church service I was feeling really depressed and anxious. In fact, you didn't know, but it was actually crippling at the time. I couldn't even eat or sleep. People had all kinds of responses. Yours was so different. You asked me straight back, who are you serving? I will always remember that. The honest answer 
was no one. I was serving myself and had been for a long time. The more I engage with and think about your response, the more I discover that serving others is the key to all my inner unrest. Serving others is the best way to forget about myself and how blissful that is. And often I'm finding that the only thing that gives me the strength to serve others is to look to God. I need him. Sacrificial love, giving ourselves to others, sets us free from sometimes the prison of, of being in our own mind, in our own bodies. And secondly, sacrificial love sets others free. And this is where the rubber hits the road for these times. Last time I talked about how love overcomes fear, but I think love also overcomes survival instinct that can actually be quite selfish. There's going to be a time when we leave lockdown where we will have to make decisions as individuals and as a church community, how we position ourselves. In these challenging times, it's easy to give in to just a survival mentality, how to look after myself, how to look after just me and mine. The more we're told that the other is an enemy, the other is a threat. And it's true, we have to be careful. The, uh, other people carry the virus, we can carry the virus. So all, these, all the rules are necessary, all the rules are right. But we cannot give in to the lie that we can do this alone. We were made for a relationship and we need one another. We need to love and serve and sacrifice for one another. And I think because of the survival mentality, like we see in extreme situations, There'll be a choice to live for ourselves or to live for others, to choose the way of survival or to choose the way of love. This is something the church has a head start on. And so we can be a great gift to this community, a great gift to one another. I pray for us that as we leave lockdown, as we imagine what's beyond, that we would have the picture of the lamb on the throne with seven horns and seven eyes, not weak and not unwise, but knowing that the true secret history, the reality of life, that the way of sacrifice leads to renewal. Let's start to imagine what it would be like when lockdown lifts. Start to imagine not just how our lives will get better, but how we can lead to other people's lives getting better. How can we be in the position where the lonely get friendship? How can we be in the position where division in communities gets overcome? How can we be there? How can we be ready? At the end of the passage, the whole of creation sings a new song. It's in worship. And as we come to the table and celebrate communion now, it's in worship that we get realigned. It's in worship that we find the strength to continue, the strength to love. It's in worship that we give ourselves to God, receiving the precious blood of Jesus, his body and his blood, broken and shed for us. The forgiveness of sins, a way to know God, even though we're not perfect. And it's in worshipping this way that we find new strength. Let's pray. I pray, Father. That the, the deep truth, that sacrificial love is the purpose of power. 
who you are to us and who you call us to be in the world. And I pray, Spirit, for each of us that you would speak to us and guide us, direct us towards one another in this congregation that we would serve one another and love one another and in this community in Bow that we would serve and love one another. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or would like to discuss anything that stood out to you from today's talk, email hello at bow.church. We would love to hear from you.